Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Thank you, Pastor Debbie. Very odd scripture that we will unpack here in a little bit after we do something that's really important. Uh, I have told my friend Ken Murray that we were going to do something today, and I was mostly telling the truth. I was mostly telling the truth. We're actually going to be doing two things today, and so I would like for Ken and Margaret to come on up, and would you help me welcome to the platform Ken and Margaret Murray. Jason's going to help me with this first part, and take it away, buddy. We're going to get to that scripture passage here in a little bit, and it's a pretty neat scripture passage because it talks a lot about the investment that God has in us over time. And for the last 50 years, Pastor Ken Murray has been a minister in the Church of the Nazarene, and about, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, you officially retired and are no longer a minister officially in the capacity of the Church of the Nazarene. And as your church family, we wanted to take a few moments in the middle of a service to say thank you for 50 years of being faithful to God's call on your life, following that call, and leading others towards Jesus for 50 years. 50 years ago, you became the associate middle school pastor at Lakeview Park Church of the Nazarene. And there is someone in this building who was in your first youth group. Doug Sanders, stand up right now. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that someone right there was in your middle school group when you just said yes to Jesus, yes to a call, and followed that call? from youth pastor position to youth pastor position until you became a senior pastor. And then really what became home for your family in Louisiana and South Carolina. And the way that over the course of your life, you have been humble and obedient to Jesus and served him and him faithfully. We are grateful. And so I want to present to you this plaque that we've had made that says this. Presented to Reverend Kenneth Murray in grateful appreciation of your 50 years of faithful service and ministry, given to you this day, September 29th, 2019, from OKC First Church of the Nazarene. Church, could you say thank you for Ken? Well, I thank you. <laughs> this is a surprise, um, and deeply appreciated. I, I love this church. Uh, some of you know, some of you do not. My grandparents were members of this church back before 6th Street Day. I mean, way, way back there. Uh, and 
our family's just been part of this, but uh, I've come to love you all and love this church. And I've loved the pastorate, the ministry. Uh, it's not always been happy and easy, but it's always been good. And God is. Thank you. Okay, before you leave. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me, let me, can, if, you're, if you're family of kin, could you please stand and we can recognize all of you? And I think that what Mark has told me, Mark and Shree, Maddox and Avery are fifth member, fifth, fifth generation. generation members at OKC First Church. That's so great. Okay, now that you have retired, we would humbly ask that you would unretire <laughs> and join our staff. We have at our church, we have uh, more than 20 people who are licensed, either locally licensed or district licensed, and on their way to ordination. Some of our full-time staff members are district licensed and on their way to ordination. And what you have done for years at the district level is you have helped to shepherd all of those people and organize this event whereby they are all kind of measured and interrogated and these kinds of things on their way. What we really need, though, we really need somebody to, to shepherd people here uh, on a local in a local sort of way. And so we have asked Ken, and so far as I know, Margaret has said yes <laughs> to join our staff. And his staff title will be, we have some long August titles around here, but Ken's staff title is going to be Shepherd. So we're asking if you would join our staff as our staff shepherd. How about that church? How about Ken Murray on our staff? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, and so what he will do is he will actually, and, and I would imagine that Margaret will have a, a big part in this too, they're actually going to get together with all of these, these people who are on the, road, on the road to ordination and check with them, see where their classwork is, but also ask them the questions like, how are you? And who better than Ken and Margaret Murray to ask you, how are you? Are you praying? Are you reading scripture? Are you a Christian? All of that stuff will be really good coming from Ken and Margaret. We do enter into a new sermon series today called Dead Prophet Society. Dead Prophet Society. Based, as you might think, uh, on a movie that was released, you guys, this is going to make you feel old, released back in 1989. This is a long time ago, but a great, great, great movie. Um, before I talk a whole lot about the movie or before I talk a whole lot about prophets, I want you to remember that after church today, you all are invited. Whether you brought anything or not, please come to the Cole Center after this and eat burgers with us and the other congregations that are going to be there. Impact Community Church is going to be back there as well. So please come and eat a, eat a hamburger with us or a Polish sausage or something like that as we honor, honor the impact of Ron Wheeler who said stuff like, like this. Let's go ahead and go to, to the next slide, John. I'm uh, Ronald Wheeler, and I was uh, came to the church March the 5th, 1944, on my 12th birthday with my grandmother. And my grandmother uh, brought us to uh, my brother and I, and uh, we've been uh, we've been here except for the time in the service. We've been here uh, all that time, 
and we were both baptized here June 11, 1944. The church has always stood by us and through everything that we've ever done. And But the main thing is that it helped people who couldn't help themselves. And the Nazarene Church, and especially this church, from the time it was down on 6th Street up here, has continued on working with people that are in need of help, that don't have anybody. Now they're working with children. We have a lot of children, volunteers from the college that work with these kids, and they're, they're miracle workers. Through the church, we give these people good, teach them to eat properly, to get them good nourishment, and to get a good, the good things in life and the things that are better. And it's one thing about, to me, you, you tell me what a child, how much money you need to spend on a child, and why, you tell me what a child's life is worth, I'll tell you how much money we need to spend. Because children today are the future, and this is what our church is doing now. This is what the program is doing. It's what it works. That's what it's all about. It's not about the uh, uh, person performing the task. It's about the accomplishment of these kids to see what I became. I would submit to you that Ron was good at investing. Now, do I mean by that that, that Ron uh, is fabulously wealthy? I don't know. I hope so, but I don't know that. What I know is that he knew how to invest. You could hear it in his voice. He knew where we ought to be investing. As a matter of fact, as Ron told us how and where we ought to invest, that's when Ron took on something of a prophetic role amongst us, around us. And then took on a role that I think was in some way similar to the role that Mr. Keating plays in this movie from so long ago, Dead Poets Society. Now, I, I, this, is, this is the thing. Uh, you don't have to watch this movie. I am not trying to base a sermon series on the plot line of the movie. What I'm trying to do is lift out some character uh, traits of this particular character, this Mr. Keating in this, in this movie. Because I do think that he too plays something of a prophetic role in the lives of the people around him. Now, in order for you to get that, though, you're going to have to unlearn some things that you might think about prophecy. Because when I say prophecy, when I'm talking about Old Testament prophets, here's what I am not saying. People who predict the future. Prophets did so much more than that. There's a grand debate out there, like, what are prophets? Well, what are they doing? And I would say to you, I'm on the side of the people who say, no, more than they were foretelling the future, they were forthtelling. In other words, telling you how to understand the present and what is emerging in the present. What is emerging in the present. Now, a prophet would probably stand against, against the common definitions of success or, or cookie-cutter mentality of the day, a prophet would stand against those things and say, hey, if you give yourselves to these situations, this is what's going to happen. So here's the way I'd like to explain it. A prophet, an Old Testament prophet, if you take that Old Testament prophet to the horse races with you, it's not that you're going to win a lot of money because the prophet can predict the future and say, oh, horse number eight's going to win. If you take an Old Testament prophet to the horse, tra horse uh, track with you, he's going to tell you, you're going to go broke. Mr. Keating, Mr. Keating was well aware there at Welton. By the way, it's, it's set in 1959. Welton is an all-male elite school 
and he's well aware that there are forces at work that sort of act like cookie cutters. Like all of these guys get to school and they're supposed to be certain kinds of people, they're supposed to go into certain kinds of work, and then here comes Mr. Keating saying, maybe there's something about poetry. Maybe there's something about this system of cookie cutting that is bad for you. Maybe there's something that you need to kind of push back against, and he did it in lots of creative ways like this. Why do I stand up here? Anybody? To feel taller. No. Thank you for playing, Mr. Dalton. I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way. See, the world looks very different from up here. You don't believe me? Come see for yourselves. Come on. Come on. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. Even though it may seem silly or wrong, you must try. And prophets, all the time prophets, and all the time Jeremiah would say, you have got to look at these things differently. You have got to look at your circumstances differently. Looking at them in the way that, in the way that you have been looking at them, Israel, has gotten you into this incredible fix. And let me tell you a little bit about the fix that they are in here in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Jeremiah. You had some bad leadership, some bad kings, and in the process of being a bad king, the people of Israel, in this case it was, the, it was Judah, so the southern kingdoms, found themselves in situations and in arrangements and in relationships that ultimately were really bad for them, really bad for them. A guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes to power in Babylon, and slowly but surely he's gobbling up all of this ground. And in fact, 10 years prior to the setting of this passage today, 10 years prior, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had already conquered Jerusalem and carried off the best and the brightest into exile. But 10 years have passed, and here come the Babylonians again. They thought, they thought that they had arranged to not have this happen again. They thought they had a deal in place, but nope, here come the Babylonians again. As a matter of fact, here's how close the Babylonians are to crashing this entire system. They are building ramps all the way up to the top of the walls around Jerusalem. They can hear them, they can see them. They are this close to being completely wiped out. Jeremiah the prophet was saying something like this. There's a reason we are losing. There's a reason we are in harm's way. You all thought that you could wander away from God and wander away from the definitions of success that God provided. You all thought that you could wander away from those things and start to take on the definitions of success of the larger culture, the larger society. In other words, what you've done is you've forgotten who God is and you've forgotten who you are. And in the process, you have wandered into oncoming traffic in the form of Nebuchadnezzar in the form of the Babylonian army. More specifically, this is what Jeremiah says all the time. You guys think that money is for you. When money is for the people who need you, who are around you. Some of you uh, are in these classes, these community abundance classes. And I'm grateful that you're going. I'm grateful for the people who are teaching them. I am, this is not going to be a nine-week sermon series on stewardship. This is a nine-week series on whatever it is that keeps you from saying yes to God. That would be the subtitle of this series, Dead Prophets Society. What is it that keeps you from saying yes 
to God. And in the case of the ancient Israelites, these Judeans, this is what kept them from saying yes to God. They slowly but surely forgot who God was and forgot who they were and stopped being the people of God. They stopped doing the mission of God and they actually started exploiting the very people that God had called them to, to the people on the margins. Earlier, earlier in the book, around chapter 16, they're trying to build and rebuild the temple using only the best, only the best and the, and the, the best and the highest quality materials. And Jeremiah mocks them saying, is this what makes you a king in Israel? Is this what makes you a king to, to have the best of all this stuff, to have this, this giant cedar-laden structure around you? Is this what makes you a king? While you exploit the people who need you the most in the process? And here's where the prophet's voice comes to bear. You have gone this far this far and farther and farther and farther from the dream of God for us as the people of God, and in the process, you have exposed yourself to all kinds of danger, and it's going to end badly. This is the kind of thing he was saying. <laughs> and as you might expect, the king of Judah, Zedekiah, did not like it. Somehow, Zedekiah the king did not like that Jeremiah was walking around saying, hey, this is all going to blow up around us. You know why? Because we're not who we're supposed to be. We forgot who God was. And all of this stuff is going to come crashing down around us. Zedekiah had had enough. And he said, you know what? You're under arrest. Moved him into the palace. And there he was under house arrest. But still there from the palace, they could see the ramps that were being built up to the edges of the walls. They could hear. They could hear all of this activity that they knew would soon spell doom. And rather than comforting the people of God and comforting the king, here's Jeremiah saying, I told you so. I told you so. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord of the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Why do you, this is King Zedekiah, why do you prophesy and say these things? Thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Why are you saying these things? Please stop saying these things. But this is what prophets do. Prophets let us know how far we have wandered from the dream of God. Prophets let us know what's important and what's not important. Prophets tell us where to invest ourselves, our resources, our time. Things were going to come to a bloody, bloody end. And Jeremiah knew why. Skipping way down. Verse 23, they did not obey your voice or follow your law. Of all you commanded them to do, they did nothing. Therefore, you have made all these disasters come upon them. See, the siege ramps have been cast up against the city to take it, and the city faced with sword and famine and pestilence has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans, same as the Babylonians, who are fighting against it. What you spoke has happened, as you yourself can see. It seems like, it feels like 
the end is near. And by the way, history tells us the end is near. This was about to be a wipeout. <laughs> a wipeout. Everything would be destroyed. The temple, the wall, Jerusalem, everything would be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar would run roughshod over this entire situation and cart off the rest of the important or meaningful and even average people, cart them all off and send them into exile. In other words, it's the perfect time for a good real estate deal. And what? Uh, yeah, seriously, that's what's coming. Look, verse six. The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you. Now, this is God whispering in Jeremiah's ear. He's going to come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anatot, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. All right, now here's what's going on. Outside of the walls of the city, out on into other parts of Judea, Judah. The Babylonians are even closer now, and they were gobbling up territory, including Jeremiah's family land. Family land is about to go up in smoke. Now, these people in Jeremiah's family, they've already demonstrated earlier in the book that they don't like Jeremiah. They've actually tried to kill Jeremiah, to distance themselves from Jeremiah, and yet, knowing that the family land is at risk, and knowing that Jeremiah might be the only family member who survives, they come to Jeremiah and they say, would you somehow buy this property and keep it in the family name somehow? Verse eight, sure enough, then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard. Now notice how public all of this is. In accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, would you buy my field that is at Anatote in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord and Jeremiah bought the field at Anatote from my cousin and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Look at how official all of this is. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales, verse 11. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of, oh, very official, right? And I gave, <clears throat> and I gave it to both sealed deed and purpose, over the deals, and I gave it a charge to Baruch, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is ridiculous. Does everybody see how ridiculous this is? All the land is burning. The Babylonians are running roughshod over everything. They are destroying everything. The end is coming, the end of Judah, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the wall around Jerusalem, the end of the temple, everything is coming. This is an odd time to do a real estate deal, but Jeremiah does it and goes to great lengths to do it, not only properly, but publicly, 
so as to demonstrate publicly that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians don't have the last word. Because it seems like, it seemed like, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were about to have the last very violent word. But somehow, somehow, somebody comes to Jeremiah while he's in jail for all intents and purposes and says, you, you very well could survive all of this. We don't know how long this is gonna take. Buy our family property, put it in your name, Jeremiah agrees and says, this is a great way for me to demonstrate, having heard all of this from God in the first place, this is a great way for me to demonstrate, yes, I'm going to buy this family field. I'm gonna do it very publicly. I'm gonna do it by the book. This is going to be my field. All the records will be filed. We're gonna have this in the vault, essentially, in the earthenware pot. I'm gonna buy this field because someday in the future, God gets what God wants. Do you invest like God's gonna get what God wants? Or do you invest to protect yourself? Do you invest like God is eventually going to win? I mean, we said this a lot during any kind of voyage into the book of Revelation. God has won, is winning. Remember the last part? And we'll win. Do you invest that way? Do I invest that way? Do we as the people of God deeply, so deeply believe that God will have what God wants that we invest? And it's not just about dollars. It can be. It can be. It's not just about dollars, but do we believe so deeply that God eventually wins, that love wins, that God wins, that we are actively and with our bodies and maybe even our dollars investing in the, the upcoming victory of God? There came a time, I've heard this story before, when this church thought very seriously about leaving and going to another Location, northern Oklahoma City. We actually had property and everything. But we decided not to. And I remember, I remember being around that table and we decided not to, and I, and I hope it was for several reasons. Here's what I heard, and this is true. This church did that before, like years ago. We moved from downtown up here and it split the church and we nearly died. We don't want to put the church through that again. Now, everybody at the table was well aware that we had a changing dynamic in our neighborhood around us. Here's what I hope and here's what I believe, actually. But there were some people around the room who said, yes, we have a changing dynamic around us. But here's what we believe. Believing what we believe about God, believing what we believe about stories like the Exodus, believing what we believe about the cross and the resurrection, Believing all of that, here's what we believe. God wins. And we will invest in what we know will be the victory of God by not moving and then by creating another organization to help us in this neighborhood. And why don't we just build the coal center 
to help us do it. And that's what we did. In a very real sense. It made poor real estate sense to build that back there. But it has worked. What about you? Do you live according to the belief and then invest according to the belief that God will win or that God will lose? That God will win or that God is absent? That God will win or a different God will win? Because I, I kind of think that's the case, right? Here's what I believe. I believe that we are built for worship, and I believe that we really have no choice in the matter. We're going to worship something or someone. And so we are either spending and investing ourselves worshiping the God of the Exodus and the God of the cross and the resurrection, or we are spending ourselves and investing ourselves in a different God who defines success differently people of God around Jeremiah in Judah had long since forgotten what it meant to be a part of the victory of God. And so they were now worshiping, quite literally, different gods in different religious traditions and faith systems. And some of them would be familiar to us. Materialism, consumerism, and all that comes with that, like exploitation of the folks on the margins, because that's what happens. Jeremiah said, we have forgotten who we are. Perhaps this crazy real estate deal will remind you that no one, no one, even over this patch of ground, even though the ramps are built all the way up to the tops of the walls, even though we can hear them speak their native language just on the other side of our walls, not even those people, not even Nebuchadnezzar himself, gets the last word about this patch of ground because this patch of ground is God's patch of ground and God will win. But are we investing ourselves that way? See, I'm going to gather them from the, all the lands, this is God speaking, to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, but I will bring them back to this place and I will settle them in safety. Another passage I could have preached from today was out of 1 Timothy 6. Verse 17 says, as for those who are in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Anything that is not this life is not really life, at least according to Scripture. I can ask the question a little differently. In whose future are you investing? Who has won your trust? Who has won your trust and has convinced you, no, 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 the future is in those hands, those hands. Is it the God of Jeremiah? Because the people around Jeremiah forgot. 
Is it the God of Jeremiah? Or is it a different God? 1959 is the setting of this movie. 1959 was also the year of the revolution in Cuba that pushed everybody out of Cuba <laughs> that wasn't on the side of Castro. Now, there was prior to that, though, a guy by the name of Lyle Prescott. Lyle Prescott was a, uh, a missionary. And Lyle Prescott traveled around the island of Cuba grabbing property, <laughs> doing real estate deals. In 1959, he was forced to leave. But before leaving, he turned all of that property over to Cubans, making sure that they had the capacity to plant local churches. Well, but in 1959, it's a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar taking over. Communism sweeps through and takes everything, takes everything. Having been to Cuba a couple times now, I can tell you this. If you're going to build anything, if you're going to secure any property, you're going to get it from the government because the government owns everything, <laughs> right? Except that, strangely enough, not only does the Church of the Nazarene have a good reputation in Cuba, but the power structure in Cuba is honoring, is honoring that in several places around the island, there are groups of people who own property known as Nazarenes, and they are allowing us to build churches there. We've been there to see it ourselves. It's almost as if way back when, in 1959, seeing what was coming, a guy by the name of Lyle Prescott invested in ways that demonstrated that he believes that someday, no matter what's coming down the pike in terms of government theory or the way that we're going to organize all of our resources, no matter what's coming down the pike, no matter who is building a ramp up to the wall, God will have the last word over Cuba. And man, the church is exploding in Cuba, largely because the Cuban government sees that this land belongs to the Nazarenes, and the Nazarenes are doing great things with it. Are you investing in God's victory? One of my favorite voices, this guy is a missiologist, an ecclesiologist, says this, the church, including this one, exists because God has revealed himself in the story of Israel, in the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are in the world as the bearers of a revelation of God's purpose for creation. Which means, which means that we Christians who buy that invest strangely sometimes. No matter who's building a ramp up to the wall, who's about to take over, right? <laughs> no matter what other gods are out there vying for our attention or our loyalty, we Christians are the ones who say, no, 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 in this patch of ground, God will win. And I am investing in the victory of God right here and right now. Okay, John, get it. What does it look like? 
Okay, well, it means a couple things. It means making sure that you aren't with your body and even with your money worshiping at a different altar. It, it at least means that. It means that you are self-reflective enough to have an answer to this question, who really holds the future and whose hands are strongest as he or she or they or it holds the future? And if that answer is anything other than the God we see reflected in the face of Christ, change your investment strategy. And with your life and with your time and with your energy and with your stuff, invest in the victory of God. Volunteer. Help teach a kid to read. John, do you mean tithe? Sure, tithe. Invest in God's victory in the future. Be a part of the reclamation of a patch of ground. Be part of the way that the people of God in the tradition of Jeremiah say, maybe as you stamp your foot, no, no one but God gets the last word. This patch of ground or this heart. It's an odd thing, actually, that we do here at this table every week. And if you're helping us, please, please go ahead and come on. In fact, I would say that there are several things that we are doing as we gather around this table. And Heavenly Father, would you bless these elements? Make them into something more than bits of bread and sips from this cup. Like I say, we're doing a lot of things as we, as we gather here. We are, in fact, remembering. Hopefully, we are remembering and rehearsing a very key, central, core story. And hopefully, we are being shaped a little bit at a time by this story. I, I say this to you all the time. I, I hope that we eat so much of this bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given that someday we are the bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given I hope also that we are slowly but surely cultivating hope. Hope. Perhaps, perhaps we need to think more clearly about this. Yes, this is broken body and shed blood of one who died, <laughs> of one who also lives. Hopefully, as we eat and drink, we are shaped not just for gratitude. That is really good and we should be. But hopefully we're also shaped to be people of hope. Have you ever considered how it might be that hope would be part of your investment strategy? John, are you talking about portfolios? You bet. And the hours of a day, the energy that you have, what might it look like to invest as people of hope? What might it look like to invest in hope? What might it look like to invest for the purposes of hope?
I have a, a, an awareness that is being clarified perhaps each time we come to the table. That's what I hope for you too. If each time we come to the table that we are shaped, yes, to be people who are grateful, but how about also that we would be people who are hopeful? How about also that we would be a people so shot through with hope that it would start to affect the way that we spend ourselves and spend our resources? Even if people looking on from the outside say, well, that made no sense at all. It doesn't have to make sense to them. <laughs> Tell the staff all the time, you can be we got to be two of these three, faithful, courageous, and wise. As long as we're faithful, the others are going to kind of come and go. If you're going to be faithful, sometimes people will think that you're wise, but perhaps not courageous. But sometimes people are going to think you're courageous as long as you're faithful, but maybe not wise. That's okay. As long as faithful is one of the three, then maybe you too will find yourself in a situation to make decisions that puts you in the courageous category, but maybe not the wise category, you're going to be in good company. How about Jeremiah? How about Jesus? In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of grace. As you approach someone holding a plate of bread, that person will snap off a piece of bread, press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread then and dip it into the cup. That person, when you dip it into the cup, will say to you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Broken body, shed blood, somebody who is not dead. And then take and eat and then find a place to pray. If you come to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing and someone will meet you there and pray that prayer. If you come up front, we won't assume a thing. You can come up front and pray at one of these kneeling benches for any reason and someone will at some point come and touch you on the back, the neck, the shoulder. You can circle right back around and sit at your pew but I hope that you will continue to pray if you'd like to make a special trip and remember the moment of your baptism. That's what this bowl of water here is for. Hopefully this chilled water will jolt your memory of the moment that you were included in the people of God who have a particular mission. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie will come to you. Just slip up a hand and they'll find you. Who is eligible to come to this table? All of you who understand your need for grace are welcome. End of story. That's it. If you understand your need for grace, there's plenty of room for you at this table. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. In the same way, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every single time you drink of it, remember me. And hopefully in the process of remembering this Jesus, we are not only grown toward faithfulness and gratitude, but also hope. Now all across the sanctuary, people of God, would you stand to your feet 
exit your pews to the left and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. <laughs> 